Lord Jesus, all of us, your people, confess that you are Lord. Indeed, you are Lord of lords and King of kings. We long for the day when you will come and sit on David's throne, when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and you will reign forever and ever. But that is not yet this day. So teach us today about how to see the kingdom of this world and how to think and live as citizens both of America and of the kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we'll return to the Gospel of Matthew, Lord willing, in a few weeks, but this week and the next week at least, we'll look at this question of the Christian in the state. And that's just it, isn't it? We've got a dual citizenship, we who are Christians. We are citizens of America, but at the same time, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And the two entities have very different rulers and very different rules. So how do we think about that? And how do we live at the same time as citizens of America and citizens of the kingdom of God? Well, first, I want to talk with you about why the state should love biblical Christians. That's Roman numeral one in your outline. Why the state should love biblical Christians. And you're thinking in your heart, but they really don't. Well, we'll get to that. First, let's talk about why they should. Why should the state love biblical Christians? They should be advertising for biblical Christians to come and join whatever national entity it is. Why? Well, first of all, because of our respect. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, because of our respect. We just read that a moment ago. What does Paul write? He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. The Greek is even more emphatic. It literally says, every soul to the superior authorities, let it subject itself. For there is no authority except from God, and those who, which exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists that authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So the Bible teaches us that God has created spheres of authority, and there have been many erroneous ideas about this even through church history. There's been the thought that the church is over the state, and so the state is a function of the church or the thought that the state is over the church. And so there is a state church, but the state itself tells who can preach what and, and who can practice what in church. The state is in charge of that. But both of those are erroneous teachings. According to the Bible, there are, there are several spheres of authority. There is the sphere of the family, there's the sphere of the state, and there's the sphere of the church. And over all of them is God. All those fears are under God, but those fears are not interchangeable. The family is not the same as the church or the same as the state, and the state is certainly not the same as the family or the church. So Christians respect the order that God has instituted. In fact, Paul teaches in those words that God instituted, God arranged the structure of state authority and entrusted the sword 
not to the church, not to the family, but to the state, as we'll study a little bit more as we go along. So Christians respect this God-ordained rule. Christians are not anarchists. Christians are not looking every day simply to tear the government down and replace it with no rule at all and no rules at all. So you would think the state would really love that. <laughs> the state would love having citizens that respect it as such, and not only respect it as such, but see it as actually instituted by God. Well, that's Christians. That's biblical Christians. You'd think the state would love us. That's one reason. A second reason why the state should love biblical Christians is because of our lifestyle. Letter B in your outline. Because of our lifestyle. And then I say, in Christ for God's glory, we dot, dot, dot. Now let me clarify that. What I mean is, this is what God calls us to do as Christians. Not to say that every Christian does this perfectly, but this is God's call to us. So as we're in Christ and as we live our lives for His glory, here's the kind of life that God calls all of us to live. First Ephesians 4.28. Well, pardon me, number one, he calls us to work hard and honestly to support ourselves and help others. So there's the first of four things I'm going to single out. He calls us to work hard and honestly to support ourselves and help others. One more time, to work hard and honestly to support ourselves and help others. I assume you're all filling this out. So the first verse then is Ephesians 4.28. Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. So for one thing, Christians don't sponge off of others. They don't sponge off of the hard labor of others. They don't dishonestly take others' production for themselves, but instead they themselves produce. They themselves are sources of production. He says, let him labor with his own hands what is good. So a good and, and moral occupation, a laboring meaning to work hard. And what's the goal? <clears throat> First of all, so that uh, he's laboring with his own hands to, to supply his own needs, but also to have something to share to the one who has needs. So Christians are called to be self-sufficient by hard work and have enough to help those who themselves have fallen on hard times or in, in legitimate need. So that kind of a citizen, you think that that would be a, a plus? To have even a nation of citizens who work hard to make sure that their own needs are met and are able to help themselves without calling on the government to help one another because of their own prosperity. First uh, Thessalonians 4 also underlines this, verses 11 and 12. And Paul's not writing in any of these cases to wealthy people. These are common laborers. These are slaves and slave owners and husbands and wives. These are just common citizens. First Thessalonians 4.11, he says, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, so a life where nobody ever has to call the police on you, your quiet uh, abiding life and prosperous life to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will walk properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So the goal and the endeavor of every Christian is to work, to work hard so as to be able to support himself, not to be a nuisance, not to be a drain, but in, in fact to be one who is prospering and, and productive. In fact, 
Paul was very strong about this in 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, it appears that there were some people who felt that the Lord Jesus' coming was so imminent, so close at hand, that they had stopped working. But well, they didn't stop eating. They stopped working. And so they had to get their food from other people who had not stopped working. And so Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we used to command this to you, If anyone is not willing to work, neither let him eat. No loaves for loafers. If anyone is not willing to work, he doesn't say not able, but he says not willing to work, neither let him eat. So don't support the lifestyle of someone who refuses to support himself, but can. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you are walking in an unruly manner, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's very earnest about this, that working with quietness, they eat their own bread. So these are the very clear commands. And Paul says in writing to Timothy that the one who doesn't support his own household has denied the faith and is, and is worse than an unbeliever. I'm sorry, I, I'm chuckling because I'm flashing on decades ago. I taught this in a church. And um, the King James of that verse says that he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. But there was a woman there who'd memorized the verses saying he's worse than an imbecile, which is very colorful but, and uh, unforgettable. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, Scripture is very, very strong about that, to be self-sufficient and also able to support your family and others in need. Secondly, Christians walking with Christ to God's glory train our children to do the same. We train our children to do the same. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, this is a full-bodied instruction and discipline. He says the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is very comprehensive. Uh, This is the educational school that the Lord has for us. So it doesn't mean that, that fathers just teach their children that the Bible is God's Word, that God is Lord, about the doctrine of the Trinity, about the gospel, though those things certainly. But fathers also teach their children the importance of doing what we just read, of growing up to be, if it's sons, to teach them to grow up, to have a career and support themselves, and one day to support a wife and children and, and be able to uh, give generously to others who are in need as well. This is part of the education. Uh, I'm certain of that just from the verse, but why else am I certain about it? There's a book in the Bible that talks a lot about this. I'm kind of fond of it. Do you know what book that is? Proverbs, absolutely, Proverbs. And there's a lot in Proverbs of instruction to the child to be to work hard, warning him against laziness, warning him against pursuing idle uh, pursuits. All of my children have heard this. Warning him against wasting his time in empty things. Urging him to work hard and be prosperous and uh, walk with the Lord and honor him first. I mean, that's all over the book of Proverbs. And a father who teaches his child Proverbs will be teaching him that. He'll be teaching him to grow up to be this sort of a person, the sort of person who is able to support himself and give generously to others. Thirdly, Christians, biblical Christians, obey righteous laws. Well, there's actually quite a lot about that. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. 
Paul says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, we'll return to this a couple of times, but I would just note, he says, for every good work. Now, that is different than saying to be ready to do anything the government says to do. And he never says that. We'll return to that. But any good work, and, and good work is, is broad. It's broader than convenient work. It's broader than work you would choose to do. But it is not broader than God's law. That is the hard edge of the government's ability to command us. So, 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 15. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. The apostle writes, Be subject for the sake of the Lord. So this is to God's glory. This is a religious thing to Christians, if you will. It's about our faith. Be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. For such is the will of God, that by doing good you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So this is uh, something for the Lord's sake to show this level of submission and doing good works and uh, being concerned about not being seen uh, by unbelievers as anarchists and rebels just for the sake of rebellion or being unbiddable, to use an old-fashioned word. And 1 Peter 4, verse 15, finally of this section, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Murderer, thief, evildoer, troublesome meddler. This is most of the things that police get called out for. So somebody who's walking with the Lord should never be the sort of person against whom the police are legitimately called out. He doesn't do those things. He is obeying the good laws, and he's being sure not to break the laws. So this is, this is the sort of thing that parents, but sadly in some, so many uh, houses and in so many uh, uh, um, cultures, even professing to be Christian, children are taught to resist and to be, uh, to be scoff laws and to be uh, idle and so forth and so on. But this is not the teaching of the Word of God. And you would think that the state would love having citizens, wouldn't you? Even just so far? And then a fourth thing, if, if all of those were not good enough, the fourth one really ought to get it. F- pay our taxes. Now, I hope nobody left when he read that verse out of Romans, if he thought this was going to be about taxes, but it is a little, because that's right there in the Bible. Uh, Romans 13, verses 6 and 7, for because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God. They're public officials, public servants of God, Paul says, devoting themselves to this very thing. And then he says, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Christian is not the sort of person who shirks this, but is willing to do this. We pay our taxes. So seriously, honestly, you go over that list, wouldn't you just think the state would love having citizens like this? Citizens who work hard to support themselves? Citizens who help the needy in their community so the government doesn't even have to do it? Citizens, citizens against whom the force of the law never needs to be called out? 
who are law-abiding, who raise children who don't get in trouble insofar as they follow their parents' instruction, don't get in trouble, don't destroy things, but themselves are learning to earn a living and be prosperous and be uh, generous and be law-abiding. And then uh, the cherry on top of the Sunday, they pay their taxes. Well, I, I just think this sounds like great citizens, so shouldn't the government love us? Does the government love us? Not so much. Why not as lovely people as we are? Or should be, insofar as we're practicing what we say we believe. Well, let's look, Roman numeral two, why the state instead hates biblical Christians. Why the state instead hates biblical Christians. Now, I want to make clear as we start this, that when I say the state, I do not mean each and every elected official. You may be thinking of a Christian you know who doesn't hate Christians who's elected. I don't mean every last person. I say the state. So what I'm saying is this is the tendency of human rule left unchecked. That's probably worth noting down. This is the tendency of human rule left unchecked. That almost sounds like a famous saying, doesn't it? Power does what? Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Unchecked, that is the tendency of political power. The tendency of political power is to corrupt. And this, by the way, is the genius of our founding fathers. And they were geniuses because they all respected the Bible, even the ones who weren't believers. They respected the Bible. And they learned from the Bible the effects of sin. And they learned from history as well the truth of that and, and, the, and what happens when a man has unchecked power or even a group of men have unchecked power. And so they built in checks and balances. They even structured it after a verse in Isaiah. This is not a history lesson, but the, our founding fathers knew this. And, and I dare say that the only reason why we've lasted as long as we have with as corrupt men and women as we've had in power is because of that. And boy, oh boy, they're trying to get around that document. But it's a testimony to their genius and God's grace that it has held together as long as it has. So why does the state instead hate biblical Christians? Two big reasons uh, under number A, because of two things biblical Christians know. First, biblical Christians know what their job is. Now, it's a terrible thing when somebody knows what your job is and you're not content to do your job. If they don't know what your job is, oh well. (laughs) That's an open field. But to have citizens who know what you're supposed to be doing and when you're not doing it can call you on it, yikes, that is not flattering to an ego that wants to rule unchecked. So what is their job? Scripture tells us, Proverbs 16, 12, it is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness for in righteousness a throne is established. Proverbs 16, 12. Now just think about this one for a while. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for in righteousness a throne is established. Now, in mentioning kings then, Solomon is mentioning the office that is the highest office in his society. For that office to commit wickedness, he says, is an abomination. It's a sickening thing. Now what does this say then? It says that high as that office is, there is a standard over that office. That office is not over the standard. Are you with me? So anything it does is not just by definition righteous because whatever it says is right. That's a God thing. That's not a human king thing. 
So it is possible for this office to commit wickedness. In other words, to do something that it is not allowed to do. It is not permitted to do something that is wrong. A throne is established in righteousness. And what is righteousness? Righteousness is conformity to a standard. And what's the standard? It's God's standard. It's God's standard. The king is not God. He's under God. Even the king is not God. He's under God. So if, if that of kings, then how much more presidents who are supposed to be under our constitution and other office holders? Proverbs 20, verse 26, a wise king winnows the wicked and turns the threshing wheel over them. So a wise king is, is opposed to the wicked in his society. And even if they're big donors and even if they're big voters and they're voting blocks, if something he does is going to mm, aggravate them, why he needs to do it because he doesn't make up the rules. He, he needs to follow the rules no matter what people say. And Christians know that, but human rulers would rather forget that. Romans 13 verses 3 and 4, just a couple of verses on from what we just read, but we read together, uh, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, that for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Oh, you see, say that's fairly safe, uh, that's fairly clear. Yes, it is, but what if you have your office by vote and a lot of your voters want to do evil and get away with it? What if they want to do something that is absolutely dead wrong that the power of law should forbid, like, oh, I don't know, just pull something out of the air at random, killing babies for being inconvenient or imperfect, something like that? But if you come out against that, you lose a lot of voters. Well, you're not over that standard. You're under that standard. Christians know this. Non-Christians want to forget it. But here's this group in society that's there to remind you, you're not the law. You don't determine what's right and what's wrong. Your job is to be a terror to people who want to do what's wrong and a joy to people who want to do what's right. Christians know this, and Christians don't tire of reminding them. And we do it not because we're a fickle voter blot, but because we're Christians, because we ourselves are under an unchanging standard. Amen? So it's not a negotiation. Negotiations cease when we're converted. Conversion is the end of negotiation, not the beginning. And so we become then mouthpieces for God's standard that is over the highest human ruler. So uh, we know what their job is, and we will remind them. We'll be happy to remind them as needed, but they don't want to be reminded. They want unchecked power. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. So now let's talk about these a little further in the significance. Paul and, and Peter say that they're servants of God, which means, okay, they're servants they're not tyrants. 
They're not the source of authority. They're under authority. They have a role. They have a function. And it's not self-defined because they're servants of God. God is over them. So God's law is over them. God's standards is over them. So you see, on the, at the same time, to be a, a, a ruling official is both humbling and exalting. It's a great thing to be a servant of God. It's a great thing to have such a powerful position, but you're a servant of God. So there's that humility or the need for humility. Christians all know that need, but somebody who doesn't want to know it does not want to be reminded of that, you see. So their task is to respect his laws and not just to make, <clears throat> pardon me, not just to make things up. Now, I can hear somebody saying at this point, well, but law is not supposed to impose morality. You can't impose your morality on somebody else. Well, Every law imposes morality. Have you seen that yet? Every law imposes morality. You say, I mean, even the speed limit? Yes, even the speed limit. What, what is the idea of the speed limit? The idea of the speed limit is don't drive faster than this because you're likelier to hurt other people if you do. Well, if you're a thoroughgoing relativist and evolutionist, you could just say, so? So I hurt other people, so what? If I'm eliminating the weaker ones from society, aren't I helping the species advance? Could you see that? I mean, if there's, if there's no absolute, no moral absolute. So the assumed moral absolute is that other people's lives are sacrosanct. You don't get just to destroy other people's lives. And so there's the speed limit and the need for cars to cooperate with others. I mean, how does a red light make you stop? What is the power in a red light to make you stop? It's just a light. There's lights all around. They don't make you do anything. Why does a red light make you stop? Because of the social compact and because of the point of law. The point is to keep you from going out in the intersection and killing or being killed. Why? Because that's bad. It's bad to kill people. Amen? Thank you. It's bad to be killed by other people. Amen? And that's the morality behind that law. And at some remove or another, Every law is the imposition of morality. So the, here's the only question. Whether morality is going to be imposed is not the issue. It is going to be imposed. What's the question? Whose morality? Whose morality? What morality? The world says, well, I'll tell you tomorrow, or I'll tell you today. Or we make it up kind of every 15 minutes. It changes every 15 minutes, and we'll tell you what today's morality is today. But tomorrow you're going to have to tune in. We say it's never going to change. You can read it. You can redefine marriage 500 times, but it'll always just mean what God says it means. And if nine Supreme Court justices say that a tail is a leg, you know, dogs still only have four legs. They can't change reality, and you can't make anything you want be marriage. And the state hates that, frankly, insofar as it wants to rule without check. It hates that. It's true that we're not Israel and we're not a theocracy, but I remind you that even if you've read the Old Testament, even at the time of Israel, Gentile nations were judged because of their sins. You might say, well, how could they have sins? They weren't under the law of Moses. Well, but God had made clear at the time of Noah that taking human life, for instance, was wrong. And there, there is a conscience that God's put in men. And so, yes, there are laws and values that we must obey, and they are God's laws and values. And if he does not, 
If we do not, then He will judge us because we're, we're under God. We're not over God. And the, the state ha- hates having people who know that. The state hates having people who remind them of that and who keep reminding them of that out loud like on the social platforms that they haven't shut up yet. Which, by the way, <laughs> you enjoy reading about how I was shut up by one of them, but God found a way to get out what I said in his own way, even more broadly than it would have been. So the word gets out, but the state doesn't like it. So biblical Christians know what the state's job is, and they hate that. But secondly, number two, biblical Christians also know what their job isn't. And that is, I think, where we really make them mad. We know what their job isn't. So, here's some things. It's not the state's job to give me meaning in life or reason to live, to tell me how to live and why, to give me hope and purpose in life. That is not the state's job. That's a God thing, not a state thing. Amen? It's not the job of the state to tell me how to think and how to speak. It's not the job of the state to tell me what I may and may not say. It's not the job of the state to tell me what, what pronouns I may and may not use and who I do and don't call a married couple and so forth. That's not the state's job. That's a God thing. Amen? And here's a big thing. It's not the state's job to raise our children. It's not the state's job to raise our children. And yet, early in our marriage, Valerie and I had a couple of, uh, our first couple of kids were in public school for a bit. And we had a conference in which I mentioned that I saw it as the job of the, of the, the school to teach reading, writing, arithmetic, a bit of history. I said, not therapy. That's the job of the, the family, and that happens at church. And I remember the principal almost literally patting me on the head and saying, yes, Mr. Phillips, we understand that once was the model. In other words, when you were young, back when the dinosaurs roamed roamed the earth uh, long, long ago, that once was the model. But now, he said, everything that concerns the child is our concern. And Valerie and I exchanged a look, and a few weeks later, we were homeschooling. Because no, it's not their job. And no, everything is not their concern. And Christians know that. The state is sterile. It's infertile. It doesn't have children. So it wants to take ours. And it wants to breed little obedient statelings. And it gets them eight hours or whatever a day to condition them to see representatives of the state as their loving, friendly the people in their lives, and to trust the state and look to the state to feed them. Didn't, not when I was a child, but now to feed them and to, to medicate them and to do everything, and, and in some cases not even to tell your parents what it's doing because that's the state's concern. It takes a village. It takes a state village to raise our children. But Christians know, no, it doesn't. No, they're ours, not yours. We will teach them, not you. They're ours to educate not yours. The state hates that because the state doesn't say it. It, Like I say, it's infertile, so it needs to take our children. And so Christians are a people who know. I've talked about respect. I've talked about obedience. But now let me add this. 
our respect and obedience has limits, and we know exactly where it is. We know exactly where those limits are. It's very simple. It's just like this. The state has no power to command us to do what God forbids, and it has no power to forbid us to do what God commands. That's fairly simple, but that covers just about everything. It has no power to forbid us to do what commands, what God commands, or command us to do what God forbids, and it has no power to tell us how to think. And when the state intrudes, when it oversteps, when it overreaches, it finds Christians to be granite, immovable. And we know why. We know what we believe, how we live, and why. So we can't be shaken. And it hates that. It hates that. So, first of all, because biblical Christians, because biblical Christians know their job. They know what their job is and what their job isn't. Secondly, letter B, because biblical Christians won't worship them. Because biblical Christians won't worship them. Let me give you an example. My first example is from Daniel chapter 6. My namesake. Humbling namesake to have. Daniel chapter 6. Listen, Daniel began distinguishing himself. Verse 3. In fact, just turn, turn there with me. Why not? We'll be in Daniel a couple of times. So take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 6. It's after Jeremiah and right after Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 6. So verse 3, Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because an extraordinary spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. So he was doing a great job at his job for a pagan ruler. He was being an excellent employee, if you will, an excellent official. And the other ones were jealous of him. And they knew they would never catch him doing something unethical or wrong or even inept, uh, unprofessional. They knew the only way was, verse 5, with regard to the law of his God. That's the only place where Daniel could be gotten if they found some way to trip him up there. And so they got a brilliant idea. They went in to the king and they proposed a a law that they knew would appeal to his vanity. And they say in verse 6 that there should be a statute that anyone who seeks to make a petition to any god of man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast to the lion's den. Just 30 days. That's not unreasonable. What, What did they call it to each other, you know? 30 days to flatten the Jew? (laughs) Well, 30 days. And I could see some cultured elite telling Daniel, it's just 30 days. Think of how it would damage your testimony not to go along. And think of the witness that you have if you can endure past these 30. It's just 30 days. God knows you wouldn't mean it. You can pray in the secrecy of your own heart. Who's going to judge and, not, and, and tell uh, that you're praying? I mean, you don't. Do you need to kneel? Do you need to open your window? Do you need anybody to know? I can see, you know, Judaism today or the Jewish coalition or whatever telling him that you don't need to make a display. You can go along and, and, and keep your witness all pure and, and nuanced and helpful and winsome. But Daniel wasn't having any part of that. What did he do? Verse 10, when he knew that the written document was signed, what did he do? He entered his house. 
Now his roof, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. And think of, think of this. His windows are open towards a pile of rocks and rubble. But that was the city of God. That was the city of his God. He'd been doing it. He wasn't going to stop doing it. The king had no right to forbid him from stopping do it, doing it. And so you know the story. The king, well, in this case, the king was horrified. He, hadn't, he had not thought this through. <laughs> and so Daniel has to be tossed to the lions. And, and then he comes in the next morning, and there's Daniel delivered. And what does Daniel say in verse 22? My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I've done no harm. Well, but he did disobey his law, didn't he? Let's be plain about this. Did he disobey the law? Yes, he did. Did he harm the king? No, because the king had no right to make that law. So he didn't hurt the king at all. And he did nothing wrong before God because the king had overstepped. He had forbidden something he had no right to forbid, something that God commanded. Here's another example I'll just read to you, but you, you of course, fill in the blank. Acts 4, verses 18 through 20, first. And when they had commanded them, well, this is not the political officials, but this is the ruling officials in the nation of Israel, the religious leaders who did not like what the apostles were preaching. And so they, they summoned them and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said, well, you know, this will keep our witness before you. So sure, we'll work with you on this. No, no, they didn't say that. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And they go on preaching Jesus. And, and these officials bring them back. And in Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, we strictly commanded you not to continue teaching in this name. And yet, and they've just seen them get Jesus crucified. So that doesn't scare you? We strictly commanded you not to do this, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood on us. You know, the blood that we said be on us and our children. But you're, you're, you're going to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. Now, this was a situation that they had created. They had put the apostles in a place where they had to choose between obeying God. They hadn't looked for it. They hadn't ginned it up to, you know, because they were young and tough and full of juice and wanting to make a point. No, they put them in this position where they had to choose. Obey us or obey God. And they said, we have got to obey God rather than you. Why? What's the principle here? Well, the principle in all of this is the essence of worship is I, what I worship defines my life. Do you follow me? What I worship is what is most important and highest to me. My thinking, my living, my decisions, my loves, my hates, they all flow out of what I worship. And whatever it is that does all that, that's what I really worship. I can say I'm a Christian, but if I care most about others' opinion or about money or whatever, well, that's what I really worship. And the state wants to be that thing. That's its natural tendency. It wants to be the thing that, that forms my, my thought and my, my life and, and my values and my decisions. And my allegiance to what I worship is absolute, and it's not negotiable. 
and I unhesitatingly must uh, obey and submit to that. What I worship, I must obey and submit to. And the state wants to be that. But it will never be that to the biblical Christian. Amen? God and God's Word will and will only be that to the biblical Christian. And we don't look for ways to make a stand. But if they make a stand, and if they demand that we choose, well, we'll always choose one way, insofar as we practice the faith we say we have. So the state can never be a God to a biblical Christian, but it wants to be. And so, yes, we will be citizens, but we will never be statelings. We have a dual citizenship, and our citizenship here is not our primary citizenship. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. We'll be American citizens for a matter of decades. We'll be citizens of the kingdom of heaven for eternity. And that's where our highest allegiance is. The state hates that. And here's the real kicker, letter C. Why does the state hate biblically faithful Christians? Because biblical Christians don't fear them. Because biblical Christians don't fear them. So you, probably, you should still be open to Daniel 6. Turn back to Daniel 3. And this is a very similar story, but this is uh, Daniel's three friends, and, and Daniel's not involved in this. And so you know the advisors want to trip them up, and so they got King Nebuchadnezzar in this case to make a law. Well, he, he had this big golden statue, and when the... Uh, bagpipes played, which is funny to think of, but when various instruments played, people were to bow down to that statue. And here's these three guys that won't do what everybody else is doing. Everybody else is, they're used to this. This is not a big deal. This is not a a, a huge issue. But here's three guys who won't just go along. They, They won't just do what everybody else knows that They ought to do. And so they come up and tell Nebuchadnezzar, and he's furious. He's he's full of wrath. And so he calls them in and he says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you are not serving my gods and do not worship the golden image that I've set up? And then he says, Look, you know, I'll give you another chance. We'll get the bagpiper to to get going here. And when he starts making that screeching, you fall down and you worship this. And what do they answer? What do they answer? Well, let's back up a step. What's going to happen if they don't? Do they lose their job? You could say that. What happens if they don't? Get tossed into an oven to die in flames. So given that choice, just make the gesture to the pole or get tossed into an oven. What do they say? They say, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do, not, we do not need to respond to you with an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to save us from the furnace of blazing fire. Verse 18, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods, and we will not worship the golden image you have set up. Whether he saves us or not, we are not worshiping that image. What would he do with people like that? <laughs> I mean, how do you get people like that to comply? And you know, he's so furious, he gets, it, he gets it heated up seven times as hot. And I don't know that that's, you know, mathematically the case. But he has it made so hot that the guys who throw them in die. But they don't. 
But it's like he wants to really, really kill them, you know? Okay, I was going to kill you, but now I am going to kill, 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 kill you. And they say, it doesn't matter. We're not going to serve your God. And Jesus says the same thing. Matthew 10, 28. What does he say? Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, it's the principle here. Why does this make states hate us so much? Well, their trump card threat is death, and that doesn't intimidate us. This is their trump card. They don't have a bigger play. I mean, what would that look like? What do you do with people on whom your ultimate weapon doesn't work, you know? Um, You need to think and live and respond and choose exactly the way you tell us even when it's against God's rules. And the Christian says, no, I can't do it. And so the state says, well then, I'll kill you. And the Christian says, and? What do you mean, and? What do you mean, and? Well, I mean, how many times are you going to kill me? Well, just the once, I guess. Okay, so you kill me, and then I'm face to face with my Lord, and I have eternal life in joy with Him and my reward. So you got anything else? What do you do with people like that? What, what do you do when your big, your big gun, literally, doesn't have the effect of forcing compliance? See, the state would love us if they wanted godly citizens, but they want to be, they want citizens who think they're God. The kingdom of man wants more than godly citizens. It wants to be as a God to us. And that's where we need to draw the line. And we do draw the line. And we won't cross that line no matter how they threaten us. Like I said, what do you do with citizens like that? Can't be cowed. Can't be intimidated. Can't be terrified into compliance. So let's talk about where this leaves us. And then next week, Lord willing, I mean to look at some more practical applications of these truths. I think we already see some, but we'll focus on that next week, Lord willing. Where does this leave us? In a, in a, a, a piece he wrote called The Freedom of the Christian, Martin Luther summed it up well in this uh, seeming paradox. He said, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And both those things are true in different ways. We are duty-bound to respect God-ordained authorities exercising just rule in the political realm. At the same time, they don't own us. They don't own our soul, our heart, our thought, our beliefs, our convictions. We are free to do what God bids us to do. So, my concern, though, as I close this, is is about your citizenship, since I don't know each of your hearts. Oh, I'm not going to ask for papers or green cards or anything like that. That's not the citizenship I'm concerned about. I'm I'm concerned, are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? Paul told the Roman that he was born a Roman citizen, but nobody's born a citizen of the kingdom of God. And a soldier replied to Paul that he had bought where he's told Paul that he had bought his Roman citizenship for a lot of money, but you can't buy 
citizenship in the kingdom of God. In fact, the truth is, it does require birth and it does require purchase, but the purchase is the price that Jesus paid. The purchase is the price of Jesus' blood that he shed to redeem every last man, woman, and child of the children of God, of the elect of God whom God had given him to save. Yes, they become citizens at great cost, but it's not a, a, not a cost that they pay. It's the cost that Jesus pays, and it does require birth, but it's not a birth that their human parents give them. It's birth by the Spirit of God which Jesus says is at the will of the Holy Spirit. They need to be born again or they'll never see the kingdom of God, Jesus says. And everyone who Jesus has purchased and everyone who's given new birth believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's the mark of a citizen of the kingdom of God. He believes in Jesus Christ. He's repented of his own works, good and evil, and he's trusted in the Lord Jesus alone. Jesus is his God and his Lord. Jesus is his life. It's Jesus he worshiped. And he's been set free from his sins. He's been set free from the tyranny of sin and the tyranny of the devil. And he's been set free from anyone who isn't God. That's a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so my question to you is, are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? If not, the call goes out and Jesus says, come unto me. And so in his name today, again, I say, come to Jesus, come to him. Trust in Him. Look to Him who alone gives life and freedom. And as Colossians 1 says, transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. This is a work of God. All who know Jesus know that work. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, Your Word and its truth, and we pray that each of us will be gripped by it, And my prayer is for all who came in not knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior, that the Spirit of God will apply His Word and that call with power, that that person will come to Jesus now for life, for forgiveness, for reconciliation, and to be enrolled as a citizen in Your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.